Welcome to the first in a new series of BMJ Open Gastroenterology interviews, which will be published on the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast channel. We'll be publishing a new interview in the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast channel every three months. In this series, we'll be covering high-profile publications in conjunction with the lead authors of the papers. In this quarter's podcast, we'll be discussing an excellent review article entitled Enteropathies with Villus Atrophy for Negative Celiac Serology in Adults, Current Issues, published online in November 2021. My name is Dr. James Ashton. I'm the Social Media Editor at BMJ Open Gastroenterology and a Clinical Lecturer in Pediatric Gastroenterology at Southampton's Children's Hospital in the UK. I would like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Annalisa Schipati, the first author on the paper we're covering today. Dr. Schipati is a researcher at the University of Pavia in Italy and a junior consultant at the Gastroenterology Unit of Maggiore Institute in Pavia. She has worked extensively on celiac disease and other non-celiac seronegative enteropathies with villus atrophy and has worked closely with Professor David Saunders in Sheffield, who is the senior author on this paper. Firstly, could I ask you to explain what we mean when we talk about enteropathy with villus atrophy but negative celiac serology? First of all, thank you very much for your kind invitation. When we say enteropathies with villus atrophy and negative celiac serology, also known as seronegative enteropathies, we indicate a group of conditions whose hallmarks are small bowel villus atrophy and negative antibodies for celiac disease while consuming gluten. So this means that we have negative IgA tissue transglutaminase and mesio and uh, terminated gliadin peptides antibodies. These enteropathies are very rare and they are characterized by a malabsorption syndrome, which is usually severe and requires an upper GI endoscopy as a first-line investigation despite the negative severe serology. These conditions are severely heterogeneous in terms of etiology and they can be distinguished into two main groups from a clinical point of view. From side, we have celiac disease presenting with negative serology and from the other, we've got non-celiac anthropathies. The differential diagnosis between seronegative celiac disease and non-celiac anthropathies is certainly a clinical challenge, and this happens for several reasons. First of all, seronegative anthropathies are rare, and they are usually managed in tertiary referral centres. So the awareness on these conditions by general practitioners, internists and other medical specialists should be increased. Secondly, there is often substantial overlap in the clinical and histopathological uh, uh, features. And in the absence of specific biomarkers for some of these conditions, the differential diagnosis may be challenging. Last but not least, a consensus on the nomenclature and the diagnostic criteria for some of these entropies is still lacking. This is the reason why in our uh, review paper we have tried to provide a practical roadmap for clinicians caring for these patients 
based on uh, our clinical experience and the available literature. That's perfect. Thank you. And I'm, I'm sure that if you read the paper, uh, as I have, you realise that it's a very practical guide and, and really helpful to clinicians. Now, in the review, you mentioned that seronegative celiac disease is the most common cause uh, in this group of conditions. Can you explain how one would make this diagnosis and what are the important clinical considerations when managing this condition? On etiology in patients presenting with philosophy and negative celiac serology. Um, we've got some key requirements for the diagnosis of seronegative celiac. Um, these include, first of all, the presence of philosophy on currently oriented specimens together with negative IgA serology, uh, which, as we have already seen, uh, means negative endometrial, uh, negative tissue transglutaminase and germinated gradient peptides antibodies while the patient is consuming gluten and um, in the absence of IgA deficiency. So this means that uh, we have always have to check um, serum immunoglobulin levels. We have always have to check um, serum immunoglobulin levels when we approach patients with villous atrophy and negative celiac serology. The second important point is the exclusion of other causes of seronegative enteropathies, which of course include autoimmune enteropathy, immunodeficiencies such as common variable immune deficiency, um, infections such as uh, giardiasis, but also HIV enteropathy, tuberculosis, whipus disease. Um, we have to exclude small bowel lymphoproliferative disorders and also iatrogenic causes such as villus atrophy due to mesartan. Thirdly, the clinical and histological response to gluten-free diet must be documented in these patients, meaning that they must undergo a gastroscopy with Zodana biopsies confirming histological healing has occurred. Fourthly, HLA typing. Uh, so HLA typing showing DQ2 or DQ8 molecules is supportive for the diagnosis. This is particularly important in doubtful cases because if HLA typing is positive, then diagnosis of seronegative celiac disease is confirmed. Otherwise, when it is negative, these uh, exclude this diagnosis. In general, if these criteria are met, diagnosis of seronegative celiac disease is easily made. A correct diagnosis, of course, is mandatory to contrast poor outcomes, as we have seen and reported that seronegative celiac patients have a higher risk of complications and mortality in the long term. Um, a few important clinical considerations apply to two groups of patients, which include those in whom celiac serology can be negative at time of testing because of gluten intake has been reduced or because of immunosuppressive therapies, and those affected by AGA deficiency. 
let's get into more details briefly in this point. So uh, maintenance of gluten into the diet at time of testing and exclusion of causes leading to immunosuppressions, such as immunosuppressive drugs at time of testing, is crucial. These patients, however, should not be considered as affected by seronegative form of severe disease because if they are rechallenged with gluten or um, if immunosuppressants are withdrawn, then their serology comes back positive. As far as celiac disease associated with IgA deficiency is concerned, this is still a hugely debated point and it's debated whether patients affected by total IgA deficiency who show positive IgG celiac serology should be considered as affected by seronegative celiac disease. Our opinion is that this patient generates a positive uh, serology and IgG-based positive serology, so this point may be in favour of a diagnosis of seropositive celiac disease. However, we are perfectly conscious that this view is not entirely representative of what other international experts say. The food is urges major expert in the field to try to find a consensus on the nomenclature and the diagnostic criteria uh, for this enteropathy, but also for other seronegative enteropathies. Thank you very much. I think that's a, that's a really nice summary of what it says in the paper in concerning seronegative celiac disease. Now, the other main group, or there's a series of other groups that you've alluded to there, the other causes of villus atrophy. Now, it seems to me that these are much rarer and diagnosis will often require a different approach. So do you have a, any comments or thoughts on, on how the clinician would go about making that diagnosis? Um, yes, it's absolutely true. Non-celiac anthropathies are uh, certainly much rarer than seronegative celiac disease, but they are also very heterogeneous in terms of etiology, and uh, they are usually burned by a poor prognosis, so they fall within the not-to-miss diagnosis. As far as uh, the, the prognosis is concerned, in our review paper, we have described two papers, um, one UK paper and one Italian paper, who showed that uh, in patients affected by non-celiac enteropathies, risk of complications, including malignant lymphoproliferative disorders, and mortality are increased compared to seronegative celiac disease. So now, um, I just would like to provide a brief summary on the major etiologies to be contemplated in the differential diagnosis of non-celiac enteropathies. First of all, we have to consider autoimmune enteropathy, which is characterized by severe villus atrophy and malabsorption unresponsive to gluten-free diet, and positive enterocyte antibodies. These antibodies are detected by means of indirect immunofluorescence on serum samples, and they are the serological markers of autoimmune enteropathy. Then we can have uh, common variable immune deficiency, 
which is diagnosing patients with severe malabsorption, fulfilling the diagnostic criteria for common variable immune deficiency. So this means that we need to test for um, serum immunoglobulin levels. We uh, need to assess the history of recurrent infections, particularly before the age of two years and uh, particular upper airway infections and poor response to vaccines. We can have diardiasis, which can be diagnosed either by um, the identification of trophozoites on duodenal biopsies or by means of PCR on duodenal aspirate. Uh, but we can also rely on stool and immunoenzymatic tests. A very relevant proportion of seronegative non-celiac anthropathies is due to iatrogenic causes, particularly homosartan. Sprue-like enteropathy due to homosartan mimics celiac disease both clinically and histologically. So pharmacological history in this group of patients is crucial for the differential diagnosis. Um, and we have to uh, highlight the concept that clinicians' awareness on this latest condition should be increased as omesotan and, in general, um, angiotensin 2 receptor blockers are widely used as antipertensive drugs. Finally, we can have lymphoproliferative disorders involving the small bowel that can present with villus atrophy, negative celiac serology and severe malabsorption. These disorders include both high-grade lymphomas, such as um, ETO, and low-grade indolent lymphomas, such as CD4-positive indolent lymphomas and uh, IPSID. In these patients, so in all these cases, clonality for gamma and beta T-cell receptors, immunostochemistry, flow cytometry um, are crucial to identify these aberrant lymphocytes populations. And the last considerations pertain a group of patients uh, for whom, despite extensive investigations, definitive etiology for their villus atrophy cannot be found. These patients are affected by a form of so-called idiopathic villus atrophy. This condition is uh, um, still poorly defined uh, because it has been discovered very recently. And in our experience, uh, we can say that in this group of patients, we have identified those in whom villus atrophy can spontaneously recover without any specific treatment within a few months. And in this case, it's likely that Villusatophy is due to a transitory uh, GI infection. But we can also have patients with persistent villusatrophy that can develop in the long term malignant complications. So these patients, this subgroup of patients, require stricter follow up. Finally, it has been reported that also small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and helicobacter pylori may be associated with seronegative villusatrophy. However, the strength of the evidence for these two conditions is poor and uh, our opinion is that these conditions, these etiologies should no longer be considered among the causes for seronegative anthropathies. That's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. And I think that something to highlight directly from the paper is that there's, 
one of the excellent figures is is a sort of condensed version of how a clinician should approach the diagnosis and management of this very broad range of conditions in the form of a flowchart, uh, and that's definitely something I would I would ask people to go and look at uh, in in the actual manuscript. I guess the the next question would be that considering some of the conditions you've discussed there and the relative rarity of some of those conditions. What are the sort of longer term outcomes we should be thinking about? Uh, and what should the gastroenterologist do when uh, thinking about treatment for these patients? Uh, yes, we have tried to provide clinicians with a kind of pragmatic roadmap for the diagnosis and management of these patients based on our clinical experience. First of all, when we, we've got uh, bilious atrophy and negative celiac serology, we have to test for serum IgA immunoglobulins because in case of IgA deficiency, class IgG antibodies must be tested. And if they are positive, then this allows the diagnosis of celiac disease associated with IgA deficiency. On the contrary, if IgA immunoglobulins are normal, then other etiologies should be considered. Therefore, we need to test for anti-enterocyte antibodies. We need to exclude infections, lymphoproliferative disorders, and carefully consider the patient's history. In case all these tests and elements of the patient's history uh, are not sufficient to make a diagnosis, then we should start considering the possibility that the patient is affected by a form of seronegative severe disease or by idiopathic villus atrophy. And it is at this point where that we have to face the clinical dilemma of whether and when to start a gluten-free diet. Uh, we believe this should be guided by the clinical picture of the patient. So, so for example, if we've got a severe malabsorption, age older than 50, um, white ethnicity, and HLA, DQ2 or DQA typing, then we would suggest to start a gluten-free diet to get together with steroids or putazonide and repeat a dudenavirus in a six months time. On the contrary, in younger patients with less severe malabsorption, particularly if they belong to non-white ethnic groups, it could be reasonable to keep a watch and wait approach. So if symptoms improve, of course, we have to repeat a dudenna biopsy, but uh, we don't need specific therapy. And if it's histological recovery, of course, we can discharge the patient. So in conclusion, we can say that the treatment should be tailored according to the etiology of uh, seronegative enteropathy under consideration and I also believe, but of course, this is my personal idea because uh, the total lack of uh, studies assessing long-term outcomes according to etiology. So my idea is that the long-term prognosis of patients affected by seronegative enteropathy depends on the underlying condition, meaning that Patients with um, an identifiable cause, which can be treated effectively, usually go better than those in whom the uh, cause cannot be identified. And so we can have just uh, the usual weapons uh, we use for other forms of enteropathy, so steroids, total parenteral nutrition, and uh, other immunosuppressants that can be chosen on a case-by-case basis. That's brilliant. Thank you. So you've alluded to some of the 
potential gaps in knowledge going forward there, including some of the long-term outcomes for this very heterogeneous group of conditions. Finally, and this is this is the last question in this podcast, but do you see any novel research or new clinical management strategies or areas that are likely to have a direct impact for some of these patients? Yes, absolutely. I believe that, first of all, it's crucial to, uh, again, a consensus on some aspects related to the nomenclature, so the definitions and diagnostic criteria for some of these seronegative anthropities. These surely will represent a starting point for um, a, a more standardized standardized and, and solid approach for the clinical management of these conditions. Uh, then I believe that some open questions uh, could remain for the moment regarding the underlying uh, pathogenetic mechanisms uh, involved uh, in these enteropathies, as well as, as we were saying before, the long-term outcomes for these enteropathies. So I believe that these uh, represent areas for uh, future research development in order to try to develop targeted therapies and tailored management for these patients, um, particularly for those who are at higher risk of poor outcomes. Fantastic. So that brings us to the end of this podcast. I'd like to thank Dr. Skibati very much for joining us today and discussing this excellent review paper. Just like to point out that we'll be publishing several more BMJ Open Gastroenterology podcasts in 2022 and beyond. So please keep an eye out for these on our website alongside our other podcasts and blogs from Gut, Frontline Gastroenterology, and of course, the BMJ Open Gastroenterology blog itself, where we cover and summarise interesting articles and topics published in the previous month. All of these are available from the main BMJ Open Gastroenterology website. And with that, thank you very much for listening and please tune in again. Mm-hmm.